Well, what a joy it is to be able to sing about our sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the privilege of um, refixing, refocusing our attention on Jesus this morning as we return to our study of the Gospel of John. And so we've taken a few weeks off over um, kind of Easter and the Good Friday and things, and so now we're back in John chapter 13. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, John chapter 13, and we're going to look at this morning that famous account when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And so John chapter 13, verse 1, uh, John records this, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which, was, with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Father, we thank you again for your precious word. We thank you that it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and has the, the power to completely, radically change our lives. And so I pray that we would see today, even in our own hearts, in our own lives, you work changes in us, that you would conform us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus, Lord, because we want to honor him. We want to reflect him, and uh, we want to live for him. And so help us towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue here in our study of the Gospel of John, we are launching into the most, one of the most beloved uh, portions of God's Word that we know as the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now, When we think about the upper room and what happened there, what we naturally think of, I think, is the the Lord's Supper. Uh, When Jesus took the bread and the cup and he transformed the Jewish Passover meal into the Christian ordinance of communion. 
However, it's interesting that John uh, is the only one of the four gospel writers who didn't include the Lord's Supper in his account of what transpired in the upper room. But what he did do uh, that the other gospel writers didn't do uh, is provide us with a detailed record of the instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, in the upper room. And uh, these next five chapters uh, contain some of the richest and, and most reassuring teaching that Jesus ever gave uh, to his followers. And some of the topics that we're going to um, hear about is how great his love is for us, um, how he will come back to get us uh, and take us to be with, heaven, to, to be with him in heaven, um, how in the meantime he would send the Holy Spirit to help us uh, to live out our lives as believers here on this earth, um, and uh, we're going to learn about our union with him. And then as you know, Jesus ended his instruction uh, here in the Upper Room Discourse by interceding for his disciples as he uttered the esteemed high priestly prayer. And so we have a lot to look forward to uh, here uh, in the next five chapters of this book. In fact, uh, the well-known um, uh, ex- uh, Scottish expositor uh, by the name of Alexander McLaren said this about the Upper Room Discourse. He said, Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech. And so that's just a, just a little bit of a taste of what uh, we're going to see here as, as we transition uh, into John chapter 13. And it does mark a significant transition in the focus of Jesus' ministry. If you remember in chapters 1 through 12, John uh, recorded the, the, the many evidences uh, that prove uh, that Jesus is the Son of God who had come to this earth, sent by the Father as the Messiah, uh, who was promised and prophesied about in the Old Testament, but uh, as, as, as John recorded the evidence, uh, and as more evidence mounted, it seemed like the more the Jews rejected him. And so having been sadly rejected by his own people, Jesus now withdrew from public ministry. We saw that back in chapter 12, verse 36. If you remember, his, his final invitation was this, while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. And in the remaining verses of, of chapter 12, we learn that what John was doing there kind of wrapping up this first section of his gospel, was he was giving an extended theological explanation of the unbelievable unbelief of the nation of Israel. And he, he, he felt the need to, to help his readers understand why the Jews didn't believe. How could there be such rank unbelief in, in God's own people in the face of such irrefutable evidence? And so John made it very clear that their unbelief was not because of a lack of evidence, because Jesus provided them plenty of evidence. It was simply because they refused to repent and believe in him, and because they had continually closed their eyes and hardened their hearts to God's word for centuries. By the time God's incarnate word, his son, arrived, the, the nation of Israel was so completely blind and hard to the truth that they couldn't believe. That's what he says in verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. And so because they rejected Jesus, they would have to experience the tragic consequences of of their unbelief, which he talks about in verses 44 through 50. And now here in chapter 13, 
Jesus turns his attention, again, away from those who rejected him, and now he's focused on those who received him. And if you, if you kept that little outline that we've kind of handed out over the course of the last couple of years as we've gone through uh, the Gospel of John, you, the, the overarching um, outline, I guess, if you will, a simple summary of, of the book is chapters 1 through 12 uh, covers Jesus' public ministry. Uh, chapters 13 through 17 cover Jesus' private ministry, and then chapters 18 to 21 uh, are just uh, the, the passion, I shouldn't say just the passion, but uh, contain his, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so here Jesus, again, having been rejected by the Jews, he retreated with his disciples to the privacy of the upper room where he spent time, and don't miss this, this is key, where he spent time preparing them for what was to come. And uh, we need to realize that in less than 24 hours from this point, chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus would be dead in less than 24 hours. Um, And so this was essentially his farewell address to his disciples before he was arrested and tried and crucified. And Jesus knew they weren't ready for what was about to happen. Why? Because they were still anticipating that he was going to overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And the way we know that is because they were still bickering among themselves about which one of them deserved to sit on his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. I mean, this is unfathomable, but, but up to the very night before he was to die on the cross, they still didn't get it. And they were still arguing about who would be on his right and left hand. This was an ongoing argument among them. Uh, it seemed to start back in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, where... Luke records an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And so over time, as these guys spent time together, they started to, to argue and banter back and forth about who was the greatest. And uh, this, this, this discussion continued, um, and even at times, uh, Jesus would, would uh, they would get somewhere after they'd been talking about this, and Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about? They're like, nothing, oh, nothing, right? They didn't want Jesus to know, right, that that, uh, that what they were talking about. But notice in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, the issue comes up, uh, really comes to an, to an ugly surface, if you will. In Mark chapter 10, uh, they no longer could contain themselves. Um, and this discussion went public with Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, that's kind of bold, right? Hey, Jesus, do for us whatever we, we, we ask. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, check this out, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So this is, this is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, right? They probably rode Harleys around, had some leather coats, and some of the sons of thunder on the back, right? So these guys, they, they, they had no qualms. They just walked right up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're, we're your guys, okay? We, we got your back, right? You're our guys, right, left hand, you're good, right? 
Jesus said to him, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, guys, are you really ready for what that would require? Are you ready to be crucified alongside me? And they, they didn't get it, obviously. They're like, oh, absolutely. And he says, well, guess what? You will eventually die for me. And then notice verse 41, hearing this, the 10, the other 10 disciples began to feel indignant with James and John. I mean, this hacked them off. And I think the reason why they got so upset with James and John, it wasn't so much, well, how could you have the audacity to go to Jesus and kind of blow our cover and just, I think they were upset because they didn't think of it first. And now they were were all jockeying for position and these guys just one-upped them. And Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And so notice what he does in verse 42, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So he gives a great uh, explanation of the principle of servant leadership, right? It's not about how many people that you're over that serve you. It's how many people you serve. That's the mark of true leadership. And he gives his own example, uh, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he kind of, uh, so here Jesus is trying to shut this down, right? And trying to help them get focused on, hey, this is what I'm expecting of you guys. And this, all this jockeying for position, who's the greatest? Listen, if you want to be a leader, a spiritual leader, uh, representing me, leading like I lead, then you need to be one another's slave. Well, you think they would have, they would have gotten that, right? Um, it would have started sinking in, but then this is just unbelievable. In Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, this argument comes up again. You ready for this? After the Lord's Supper, in the upper room. Luke chapter 22, it's uh, verse 24. They just get done with uh, the Lord's Supper. Jesus has just turned the the Passover meal into the, the, the Christian communion ceremony. And look at verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Now, we can't know this for sure, but I would like to think that it was at that very moment right there in that white space between verses 27 and 28 that John, who was there, right, laying down next to Jesus, having supper together, uh, inserted what happened in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, that Jesus got up at that moment and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, and he girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. 
I can't imagine the disciples continuing to argue about who was the greatest after Jesus washed their feet, right? But regardless of the exact timing, we do know for sure that Jesus uh, washed the feet of his disciples in response to their ongoing dispute about who was the greatest among them. And I think it's very important that we, we, we understand this, 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 this foot-washing scene in that context. And the first thing that Jesus needed to do to prepare his disciples for what was about to come was to help them to get over themselves. They were so blinded by their own pride and, and selfishness that they were unable to see what was actually going on. And in sharp contrast to their their prideful, self-seeking, jockeying for position attitude, Jesus humbly assumed the role of a slave and began to go around the table and wash their feet and in so doing provided them with an unforgettable object lesson. And I think here in John 13, we, we see very clearly the two reasons why Jesus washed his disciples' feet. We know in part it was in response to their ongoing argument about who was the greatest, and he wanted to just put a, he wanted to just shut that down. He, he wanted to put them in their place, right? But but there was there was two reasons here that John brings out um, why Jesus washed his, his disciples' feet. Number one, he wanted to provide them a symbol of spiritual cleansing. That's verses one through eleven. And and secondly, he wanted to provide them a standard of sacrificial serving. A standard of sacrificial serving, verses 12 through 17. And so let's look at these these two reasons why Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Number one, it was a symbol of spiritual cleansing. He begins here, John says, now before the feast of the Passover. We know the Passover was Israel's annual commemoration of their deliverance from bondage to Egypt. The, The name Passover describes how the death angel passed over the homes of the Israelites who in obedience to God's command slaughtered a lamb and wiped the blood on the doorpost. And we know that this served as a a vivid picture of how God would ultimately provide his own son as a sacrificial lamb whose blood would cover the sins of his people and deliver them from God's judgment to sin. And so they were about to have this Passover meal together, um, which was eaten typically Thursday night after, sometime after sunset. And so as Jesus shared this sacred meal together with his disciples, there, was, there were several things that he knew, according to, to John here. Notice, number one, he knew the hour had come. He, he knew the hour had come. Notice it says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so he, he knew his hour had come. Now we're familiar with this expression because we've seen it a number of times already in the Gospel of John. And at the beginning, right, we, we saw that his hour had not come. It says that a number of his hour had not come, and now we, we saw in chapter 12 that his hour had come, and here, very specifically in verse 13, chapter 13 here, that his hour had come. Well, what, is it, what are we talking about, his hour? Well, Jesus knew that the final stages of God's plan for him for, were about to quickly unfold, and, and, and that hour that he was anticipating was the time when he would die, when he would rise again and ascend back to heaven. And so he had come to be crucified, to be resurrected in obedience to the Father's will, and, and Christ's coming, we know, was an act of love for all mankind, right? For God so loved the 
world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. But we see here in this verse, verse 1, that Jesus also has a special love reserved for those who are his own. And so he demonstrated how much he loved his disciples by what he was about to do to them. Notice it says he loved them to the end, to the end, to literally perfection, to the infinite degree he loved them. Um, So he perfectly loved them throughout his entire earthly ministry, and he would love them for all eternity. Uh, But he was about to show the extent of his love for them in an extremely practical way. And so by washing his disciples' feet, he was reassuring them of his great love for them. And so he, he knew the hour had come, number one. Number two, he knew his betrayal was already set in motion. He knew his betrayal was already set in motion. Notice verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. John mentions uh, Judas more in his gospel than any other of the gospel writers. He introduced us to, to, to Judas back in, in chapter 6. Uh, verse 70, he said that, uh, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so he mentions that again here in chapter 13, verse 2, and he's going to really record the entire betrayal uh, at the end of this chapter. We'll probably see that in a couple weeks. But but the point is, notice it says, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, so Satan had already uh, entered Judas, had inspired him to carry out this, this evil plot, but let's not you know, feel so bad for Judas. Uh, We know that he was an evil man himself, right? Uh, His wicked heart provided fertile soil uh, for Satan to accomplish his work uh, through him. And so uh, Jesus knew uh, what was about to take place through Judas. And then thirdly, uh, Jesus also knew that God had everything under control. That in light of everything that was about to happen, everything that he was going to have to experience from the betrayal to the arrest to the beating uh, to the crucifixion, um, he he knew that God had it all under control. Notice verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. In other words, God had entrusted to Jesus, right, his authority, uh, his sovereignty, and that his work that he had been sent to accomplish here on this earth would soon be accomplished. He would return to heaven where he would be exalted at the right hand of the Father and be restored to his original glory within the Trinity. He expresses this in, in his high priestly prayer. Notice John 17 Verse 4, he prays to God, Father, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so he was anticipating uh, being restored to his place among the Trinity there in, in heaven. And so with all this in mind along with the petty squabbling, right, that was uh, continuing amongst the disciples about who was the greatest, Jesus got up from supper and proceeded to wash their feet to their shock and to their shame. Verse 4, Jesus got up from supper, laid his, aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. Now, in those days, 
It was customary for a host to provide a slave to wash the guests' feet when they arrived for, for a dinner party like this, an occasion like this. We, we know that because of uh, uh, Luke's account of Jesus' visit to Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7. Remember, uh, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and, and uh, this woman came in and uh, was weeping at his feet and her tears fell on his feet and so she took her hair and began to wipe his feet uh, to wash off the tears and and, uh, and and of course Simon was aghast saying if he knew what kind of woman this was how immoral she was he would never let her do this and, and, and Jesus just rebuked him and said Simon she's taken way better care of me than you ever did I came in here and you never even washed my feet and so we know that that was a, a, a custom it was a, really an act of hospitality but it was also more than that it was a necessity because everyone in those days wore sandals and, and there were few paved roads and so everywhere they walked it was dusty, it was muddy. In fact, when I got back from uh, Israel, I took my shoes out of my suitcase and I took them to the garage and I had to wipe them all down because of, uh, they were just caked with dust from walking around the Holy Land for 10 days. And so that's the way it was back then, but much worse in sandals. And, and um, the other thing that I think is important that we understand is that unlike today, people back then ate reclining on the floor around these low tables. They didn't sit up, right, at cha- t- chair on chairs like we do with their feet under the table. Uh, they would lean uh, on their left arm and they would eat with their right uh, hand and, and they, would, uh, they, they would extend their feet out in the direction of the person sitting next to them. We know this because look at verse 12. It says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. So he, he got up from this kind of laying down on his left elbow eating as so he got up and all the other guys were doing that so he's walking around these guys are laying out there and they got their feet uh, perfectly exposed to to uh, for him to wash them but the last thing you wanted to smell at supper was some other guy's stinky feet right the other thing you need to know about foot washing it was such a menial task that that it was reserved for the lowliest slave in fact it was included in a list of things that a jewish slave could not be required to perform in other words, that's something that the Gentile dogs should do. But man, the Jews should never lower themselves uh, to wash someone else's feet. And so it's no wonder that, that Peter protested when it was his turn to get his feet washed by Jesus. Notice verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So like uh, so many other occasions, I'm sure, Peter served as the spokesman here for the rest of the disciples who were obviously as stunned as he was and they were convicted, even embarrassed that Jesus was washing their feet. I think the, the word that comes to my mind that probably described best that situation in the upper room was awkward this was a very awkward situation because when they had arrived in the upper room, surely they had noticed the, the towel and the basin by the door, but they, 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 they recognized there was no slave. Where's the slave? Okay, somebody, uh, somebody dropped the ball here. Whoever was supposed to put all the details together of this, securing this upper room and making sure we had everything we needed to celebrate Passover together, somebody forgot the slave. And any one of them at any time could have offered to be the foot washer, going, oh, 
hey, you know what? I got this, guys. No problem, right? But nobody did that. Why? Because all of them thought more highly of themselves than they ought, and none of them were willing to humble themselves since that would imply that the others were greater than them. This was not the time to be getting down on your knees and washing another one of the disciples' feet when you were jockeying for the top position. That wouldn't help your, your, your chances in the running here, right? To sit on the throne alongside Jesus. And so the point is they were all fighting for the throne when they should have been fighting for the towel. I mean, isn't that the way we live our lives? We go through our lives fighting for the throne. We, we want to be the greatest. We want to be the best. And, and, and we're, not, we're not looking for the towel. We should be looking for the towel. How can I serve? How can I humble myself? How can I sacrifice for others? And so in order to expose the, the pride and the selfishness that was in their hearts, Jesus did what they were unwilling to do. I'm sure that if, if, if uh, they, they had been given the opportunity to wash Jesus' feet, saying, hey guys, you know what? My feet never got washed. I'm sure the disciples would be fighting then to get to the thing, to, to wash Jesus' feet, right? But there was no way they were going to stoop so low to wash each other's feet. And so now they, were, they got themselves in a pickle, right? Um, they were dealing with the consequences of their pride and selfishness. And they were in this very unnatural role reversal that caused Peter to, act, to react with revulsion. I mean, this was, this was socially unacceptable. Never in, in Jewish or Roman culture would, would a superior ever stoop down at the feet of his inferiors. It was the opposite way around, right? That the student would sit at the feet of the master. The master would never put himself at the feet of his students. And so that's why Peter objected here. And the emphasis here in the Greek is on the you. Lord, do you wash my feet? Never shall you wash my feet. The, the, the point is, there, there's no way I'm letting you wash my feet. Well, Peter was never at a loss for words. We know that, right? This is one of the, those instances where he spoke before he thought. Um, someone described Peter as uh, this way, that the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet. So that describes some of us, doesn't it, right? But in light of everything else, the disciples failed to grasp at the point. At this point, Jesus told Peter, listen, what I, what I do, you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. In other words, you can't possibly understand the implications of what, what is going on here, but, but it's all going to come together soon enough. And then he hinted to Peter that there was a, a deeper meaning here to, to him washing his feet. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. What, what do you think the deeper meaning was? Well, I think that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was prefiguring how he would humble himself to the point of death on the cross to provide them with spiritual cleansing from their sin. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 8, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, unless your sins are washed away by the atoning blood of Jesus, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus. And again, Peter missed the point here, and he, he impulsively swung to the opposite extreme and, and said, Jesus, give me a bath. Verse 9, he says, Simon, Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. 
And then notice Jesus' response here. It's very uh, insightful. He said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now that statement is, is just pregnant with meaning. It's, it's a veiled reference to, to the difference between justification and, and sanctification. It's the, he's comparing taking a bath and washing your feet. Two totally different experiences. And so he likens, first of all, justification or, or getting saved to taking a bath, right? At the moment of our salvation, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are completely washed away through faith in Christ's blood that he shed in our place on the cross. 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, he says, but you were what? Washed, right? He talks to the Corinthian believers and said, God washed away all that sin, right, that you had committed uh, before you came to Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, he would be made heirs, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so when he talks about he who has bathed, he's talking about those who have been saved. And that initial cleansing from sin that takes place at our salvation uh, never needs to be repeated. But he says, you do need to have your feet washed from time to time, right? He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. His point is this, that even after a person is justified or saved, they do need to be continually cleansed from the daily defilement of sin. And as aliens and strangers, we we walk through this this sin-filled world and we step in mud puddles along the way and we get splashed on along the way in our ongoing battle with sin. And so as a regular part of our sanctification, the the process by which we're set apart from sin uh, unto God, part of that process is confession. Confessing confessing sin that we commit that that causes our fellowship with God to be broken. Uh, When we sin as as believers, it, it doesn't affect our union with God, it affects our communion with God. Right? We're we're united with God forever in Christ. But it does affect our communion, our fellowship. And so later on in, 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 in subsequent letter here, I should say in a latter letter, First uh, John, uh, the, the, John writes us another uh, p- passage here in First John chapter 1, where I think he expands on this whole idea of having your feet washed. He says in First John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here it is, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says in verse 2, or chapter 2, notice he's writing to believers here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and so we go uh, to the throne of grace through our advocate the father through our advocate the son right jesus christ and we confess our sin to him and in so doing right we we have our our, our feet washed if you will uh on a regular basis 
Maybe you could look at it this way, that, you know, when we get up in the morning, we, we typically take a shower, right, and, and we're good to go for the day, right? And, and you might go to, excuse me, you might go out to lunch, and, uh, you know, you go to the barbecue joint, or you go get some crawfish, and, and you're all done eating your ribs or your crawfish, and you're like, man, I am an absolute mess. And, and, and you're, you know, you don't call the boss and say, well, hey, listen, I, I, I'm going to have to knock off work, I go home and take another shower. Hopefully you don't do that after you're eating crawfish at Sam's boat, right? You just, you, what do you do? You go into the bathroom and you wash your hands, right? And maybe you wash off your mouth, but you don't go home and take a bath, right? A shower. Why? Because you already took your shower for the day. That's, that's the idea here. William McDonald says it well in his commentary. He says there's a difference between the bath and the basin. Cleansing from the penalty of our sin through the blood of Christ takes place only once. Cleansing from the pollution of sin must take place continually. So he's making a distinction here between the penalty of sin and the pollution of sin. But then notice what he says. He says, he was bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. In other words, you're clean, Peter. You're good to go, man. You, I don't need to give you a bath. You already, you're already saved, right? Your, your, your sins have been completely washed away. But not all of you. And we don't have to wonder what he meant by that because he says, John says, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so this is clearly a reference to the fact that Judas was not saved. Because he had rejected the words of Christ, he was still in his sins and had no part with Jesus. I was thinking about this, that you know, in the same way that Jesus had perfect knowledge of everyone in that upper room, he knew where everyone was at in that upper room, he has perfect knowledge of everyone in this church. He knows what's going on in everyone's heart in this room this morning. And I would guarantee you that if Jesus were to come here and talk to us, he would say this. He would say, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. You're like, what are you talking about, man? I'm here. I'm I'm sitting here. I'm in church. Come on, cut me some slack, right? Listen, just because you're sitting here doesn't mean you're saved. I mean, this is Judas, man. He walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus for three years. And, and, and put on such a good show that none of the other disciples even expected that he would be the one that, that would betray Jesus. The point is, if you refuse to believe and obey God's word, then your sins are not cleansed, and you'll pay the penalty for them in hell. And I want to encourage you this morning, don't Don't leave today without knowing for sure that your sins, past, present, and future, are completely cleansed, washed away by the blood of Jesus. You gotta know that for sure. And so the first reason that Jesus washed his disciples' feet was to symbolize the the spiritual cleansing from sin that we all need and that he was about to provide uh, in less than 24 hours. Secondly, he, he, he washed his disciples' feet to provide a standard for sacrificial serving. He wanted to provide a standard for sacrificial serving. Notice verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, 
The Lord and the teacher washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you and what? An example that you also should do as I did to you. So what Jesus did was to serve as a model for them, to establish a pattern for them to follow in the way that they interacted with each other. That was the issue here. I mean, it would have been natural uh, to me. I, I mean, sometimes I read this and, and I, 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 I think this is what he would say at verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash my feet. But that's not what he says. He says you need to wash one another's feet. And again, I, I don't think any of these guys would have had a problem washing the feet of their master and their teacher. They would have lined up to wash Jesus' feet. But they weren't as eager to wash each other's feet. And so Jesus says, listen, you're to treat each other just like I treated you. You know, we, we, we usually use that thing, you know, treat others like they treat you kind of thing. And so if they're not being that nice, I'm not going to be that nice. And if they're nice, I'll be nice. And we some kind of feel justified not serving someone when they're not really interested in serving us. But they're not the standard. We need to serve others like we have been served by Christ. And guess what? He served us perfectly and sacrificially. And so we have no excuse. I don't care how people are treating you, right? We need to serve them the way Christ served us. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was expecting his disciples to run over to the, to the basin of water and, and grab the towel and start washing one another's feet. I think he was simply telling them to stop thinking and acting like they were more important than each other. He was instructing them to have a, a humble, selfless attitude towards one another and to be willing and eager even to sacrificially serve one another. And if they didn't follow his example that he just set for them, they weren't only implying that they were greater than each other, but they were also implying that they were even greater than him. Notice verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. Guys, I know what you've been arguing about all this time. Who's greater than each other? Who's, right? Listen, the bottom line is, if you're not willing to do this, you're saying you're greater than me. You're Lord and your master. And we know that none of us are greater than Jesus. And, and if he was willing to wash his disciples' feet, then nothing is below us, right? Nothing should be beneath us or too low for us to do for someone else. Listen, there, there may be some things you get asked to do in life that are above your pay grade. <laughs> But there should never be anything that you think is below your pay grade. Like, I'm too good for that. Somebody else, that, somebody else is going to have to do that. Notice how this ends, verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you reflect on them and discuss them and have Bible studies about them. What does it say? If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Listen, it's not enough to know the truth, we need to act on it. Jesus didn't want his disciples to just reflect on what I've done for you and discuss what I've done for you. He wanted them to do what he had done for them. And again, he wasn't, he wasn't saying do to me what I did to you, but do to others, right? 
what I did to you. And he said, listen, you're ble- you'll be blessed. If you do these things, you will be blessed. You will be literally happy. That's what that word means. You'll be happy. And, and here we have one of the most basic principles in the Bible that our happiness, our joy, that, that blessing is tied to our obedience. Psalm 1 Verse 1, how blessed, happy, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, and, 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 and he'll be blessed, he'll prosper. Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed, Jesus said, are those who hear the word of God and do it. And of course, we're familiar with James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 22 James says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely what? Hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. What a great example. He says, hey, the word of God is like like a mirror, right? And and it shows us the areas in our lives that need to change. And and, and so if you hear the word of God, um, but don't do anything about it, you're like a guy that looks at his face in a mirror, sees all the stuff that he needs to change, and he walks away, and he forgets, and never does anything about it. He says, verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be, remember what? blessed in what he does. Listen, beloved, God does not bless us based on how much we know, but based on what we do with what we know. And I would just suggest to you that maybe the reason why some of you are so unhappy all the time, you're, you're depressed all the time, is because you're not doing what you know you should be doing or you're, or, or you're not doing something you know you should be doing. James 4.17, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it is what? Sin. So why would you expect to be happy? Why would you expect to feel blessed by the Lord? Now, I just have to mention this because I know some of you might be thinking this or may have some experience with this, but uh, some churches, in order to follow Christ's example here and obey this command to, to, to wash one another's feet here, um, some denominations actually view foot washing as a third ordinance, and they practice it along with baptism and communion. Anybody ever been in a church that had foot washing services? Uh, if you've been a part of a Brethren church or maybe a Seventh-day Adventist church, they, they, they practice uh, a foot washing, which, again, I, I have no problem with. I don't think it's, a, it's, it's wrong for them to do that because it, it, it's a pretty strong command here, isn't it? Uh, and, and it would be very easy to, to say, well, why don't we continue to practice that like we do baptism and communion? Well, uh, first of all, I think we need to admit that in today's culture, there's no need to wash one another's feet like they, there was back then. This was very cultural, right? Uh, we're not walking in here traipsing through the desert here when we come to church and we don't have a, a, a bowl of water and a towel by the front door. Why? Because that's just not the culture in which we live. You don't wash your guests' feet when they come over to your house for dinner. Maybe you do. That's okay. But we don't, okay? You're not going to get your foot washed coming to our house, okay? Uh, but, uh, and we wouldn't expect to come into your house. It was a cultural thing. Secondly, there's no evidence 
that foot washing ever became an ordinance in the early church. I mean, you can't find it in the book of Acts. When you look through the book of Acts, which is the example of the early church, you, you, you see baptism happening, you see uh, the Lord's Supper happening, but you never see uh, foot washing happening. In fact, the only other time foot washing is mentioned in the New Testament is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. And you don't have to, you can look at that later, but basically what it was, it was a gracious act of hospitality that was included in a list of good deeds uh, which qualified a widow to be financially supported by the church. Check, she, 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 she washes people's feet. That's a good thing. It was not uh, necessarily an ordinance of the church. So I think clearly Jesus wasn't commanding us to, to literally wash each other's feet, but to put into practice the attitude of humble, selfless, sacrificial service which we know is emphasized all over the New Testament. In fact, let's look at one passage as we close, Philippians chapter 2, because we need to make this connection stick here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And the reason why I love this passage and want to end with this passage is because I think the foot washing scene in the upper room is a beautiful and powerful portrayal of Jesus' entire life and ministry here on earth. It's like a microcosm uh, of, of his whole ministry. Notice Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from, what? Selfishness or empty conceit, pride, in other words. Does that sound familiar? Do nothing from selfishness or pride, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important selves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, don't go around arguing amongst yourself who's the greatest. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You're like, okay, what attitude? Well, Paul goes on to describe the attitude of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is this Christ-like attitude that we're to have? Rather than fighting for his throne, he left his throne. He left his throne. And he came to this earth, became one of us, and was so humble and so selfless and so sacrificial in his service of us that he let us kill him. That's how humble, selfless, sacrificial he was. And that scene in the upper room when he took that towel, he took that basin was just, was just again, a microcosm of what, of what he was all about. That he came, he, he left his throne in heaven to come take a towel on earth and to wash the stinking, smelly feet of his disciples. And so for us, I think we need to take, take up the towel and take up the basin every day of our lives and humbly, selflessly, sacrificially serve people in our family, our, our spouses, um, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters, people in your neighborhood, uh, people at your work, people at your school, 
people in this church. And just know that you're going to get in some situations that are pretty stinky and pretty smelly as you seek to serve others like Christ has served us. Amen? Bruce Milne said this. He said, It is those who have been humbled at the cross and come to Christ as helpless sinners seeking his cleansing who are the raw material of the community of humble servants. In other words, unless we're the kind of people that, that recognize ourselves as helpless sinners who, who, who have been humbled at the foot of the cross, we will never be a part of a community of people uh, who, who just humbly serve one another. And so all this starts at the cross. You gotta come to the cross. And I wanna encourage you, if you've never come to Jesus this morning, come. So that you can appreciate, so you can enjoy, so that you can be blessed the way God intended. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and just how practical it is. Lord, I pray for those who, who you might say this morning, um, you're not clean. I don't know who those people are, Father, but you do. And I pray that they would hear your spirit in their heart this morning, that you're talking to them, that they are not clean. Not all of us are clean, and they're one of them. And that you would give them a desire to want to be completely cleansed from their sin, past, present, and future. That they could leave here today knowing that they're, that they're saved from, from your wrath and, and that they're on their way to heaven, Lord. I pray that you'd accomplish that work in people's hearts. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, that you would just make us humble, selfless, sacrificial servants. Give us eyes, uh, Lord, to see the opportunities around us to serve others, even if it might not smell so good or not look so good, but we would get involved. And uh, Lord, even as Christ got involved, he got down and dirty with us here on this planet. And so Lord, just teach us to stop fighting for a throne in this life and, and just to fight for a towel and that we would find great joy and blessing in being your humble servants. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.